Welcome, Bookcase listeners. I'm Charlie Gibson, the father in this duo. Bienvenidos a la estantería. I am Kate Gibson, who is la hija in the, in the duo. Hi. It's nice to, <laughs> nice to have you guys back with us. We do this. We, Kate does the, the uh, questionable Spanish. We think we're right. Uh, welcoming you to the bookcase because today we feature Esmeralda Santiago. And we talked to her back in December about a three-volume memoir that she wrote, which is, I think, very memorable and I loved. But she has now written a novel. And I think it's fair to say, Las Madres, by the way, is the name of it. But I think it's fair to say, Kate, that uh, Esmeralda has become one of your favorite writers. I think that's definitely fair to say. I think she's a beautiful writer. And I'm blown away by the beauty that she puts in that three-volume memoir, which, by the way, just chronicles her life until the age of 25. That's how fascinating her life has yeah, been. Yeah. And she does fiction equally well. That, I don't think I've really come across that often. Las Madres is an amazing book. It's a sprawling book. She does so much with this book. This is a book about mothers and daughters. This is a book about Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. This is about a main character who struggles with memory issues. This is about people's connections to Puerto Rico, whether they emigrated or whether or not they've ever been there and are just from there ancestrally. There's so much going on in this book, and all of it is beautiful. It's joyful. It's powerful. And I loved it. Esmeralda came to this country when she was just 13. But I think it's fair to say in this novel, she shows how a country of origin, in this case, Puerto Rico, can continue to burn in the soul of those who come here. She was only 13, but she is so embedded in the culture of, of Puerto Rico. And as you say in that memoir, those memoirs, she comes to this country having been born in the poorest areas of Puerto Rico and comes to this country and gets admitted to the School of Performing Arts in New York, eventually goes to Harvard. Like you do. Graduates magna cum laude after having learned English in two years and has gone on to the successful writing career. It's an amazing story, and it is reflected some in Las Madres, her novel, which uh, Kate got me to read and which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, it's really, it's just a beautiful book. It's essentially about three women who emigrated from Puerto Rico and the two daughters that they're raising sort of amongst the three of them. And in some ways, too, it's about the way we define relationships between mothers and daughters and the way mothers and daughters take care of each other, because certainly mothers take care of daughters. That's what we all think of. But I think in some ways also two daughters end up taking care of mothers, either end of life or anyway, it's just it's a beautiful book with lots of layers. I'm really excited that we got to talk to her again after we talked to her about her amazing memoir. So here it is, our conversation with Esmeralda Santiago. Esmeralda Santiago, it is such a pleasure to have you back in the bookcase. Your new novel, Las Madres, I had trouble putting it down, and I'm fascinated because it seems like you were trying to do a lot with this book. <laughs> you wrote about Maria. You wrote about mothers and daughters. You wrote about the complexities of families, the difficulties of being Puerto Rican in this country. So I guess my question for you is, what was the first thing? And when you were writing this, did you ever think, oh, my gosh, I'm doing a, a lot? <laughs> Have I taken on too much? I always feel like my ambition is way beyond my abilities most of the time. <laughs> I do grapple with a lot, but I am the eldest of 11 children of a huge family. And a lot is always happening at the same time on all 
sides alongside me in front, behind me, on top of me. I mean, it's just always like that. But this book really began with a question about memory. I think as we get older, we start thinking more about our past and we start wondering about, am I going to lose mine? <laughs> Which is one of the things I was worried about, especially because I've had a stroke. Memory is a big deal in my, in my uh, consciousness. But somehow, as I began to write, I said, what would it be like to not have a memory? And as a Puerto Rican, I'm, I'm very conscious of our history. As I say in, in my first novel, America's Dream, as a Puerto Rican, my shadow feels like I'm dragging the history of Puerto Rico with me everywhere I go. So this is about memory by an individual, but it's also about memory about a people and about an island. You talked about the role of memory. One of your main characters struggles with memory. And coincidentally, I'm in an intro to psychology class right now. And I was wondering, what is the name for what she actually has? Is it anterograde amnesia? Is it retrograde amnesia? Is it a combination of the two? Whatever her condition is, I invented. (laughs) (laughs) I needed her to have those kinds of issues that the characters are dealing with. So I don't have a name for it, and I don't even know if anybody has it except for this fictional character. But I really wanted her to have all the kinds of amnesia that I had read about, uh, the short term and the long term, and then this whole concept that every once in a while, these memories will emerge that she will immediately forget. But also she's aware, you know, she listens to, uh, she watches two baseball teams playing, for example, and she can keep track of it, probably doesn't remember the score at the end, but she knows what the game is. So those kinds of things, I don't know. I just made it up. (laughs) Well, we we will refer to it henceforth as Santiago amnesia. (laughs) It it is a new, there's probably a Latin term for it as well, Santiago's Santiago's amnesia, yes. Right, exactly. So we'll, we'll refer to it. Uh, henceforth that way. So what did you want to say in this book? What do you want? It's, I, I got the feeling all the way through the book that Esmeralda has a message in mind. There is something that she is trying to say to me in this book. I have my own feelings of what that was, but, but what are yours? Well, I wanted to, there were a lot of ideas I wanted to get across. One important one, of course, is how if we don't have a memory, of our history, do we have an identity? And this is an issue that that anyone who comes from another culture into a different culture, you struggle with that all the time. You know, you, you love your home country, perhaps, or your parents' home country, if you're first or second generation, but you may not have the history of it. And so I'm, that was one of the things I wanted to present, you know, this idea that if you don't have the memories, if you don't have a history, you don't, you really need to define your identity in some way. So that was one of the things. The other thing is for me, I feel like my people, mi gente in Puerto Rico, have a very short attention span for their history. And so this is one of the reasons why this character has a very short attention span to her history. Because I think it's endemic in, I don't know if this is the case in every country, 
but I see this in our history in Puerto Rico. And I wanted to Puerto Ricans to think about this, how dangerous it is not to have a sense of your history, because again, it affects your identity if you don't know what your history is. I also wanted to present characters from Puerto Rico who are not dancers, singers, baseball players, <laughs> boxers. I really wanted to bring people, women in particular, who were accomplished in their own fields that when we think a Puerto Rican person is not the first thing we think about, including the fact that some of them live in rural Maine as well as in the Bronx. So that was important to me because I travel all over the world and I find Puerto Ricans in the most unlikely places. And I know that we are, you know, that we're functioning and, and thriving in those places. And so I wanted to bring that perspective. For me, Luz, the, the young woman who has the um, Santiago amnesia, <laughs> she, she to me represents Puerto Rico. One of the things that I felt very strongly in this book is you're saying that everybody who comes to the United States has a feeling for their homeland. But in the case of Puerto Rico, it is so strong. And even if you haven't been there or weren't born there, but were born in the United States, there's one line you write, Mary Soul is a Puerto Rican in the Bronx who's never been to Puerto Rico, but yearns for a place she's never seen. Would being there alter her sense of herself? That's extraordinary that somebody who hasn't been there still has, you think, a very strong feeling about the country. Why is that? Yeah. Well, I think uh, part of it is, of course, because our, their parents <laughs> or their relatives are very, very connected to the culture and, and the history and the island. But I think it's a thing, I wonder uh, also, whether it's an island thing. If you're from an island and you're very, you're contained mm. by mm. water, as the former president, you said, surrounded by water. <laughs> so if you are there in this place, there's something, I think there's a different kind of personality type for somebody who's from an island because this place is really small, even though when we look at ourselves in a map, we're just this little dot. You know? But a lot of people live there and we have a history and a language and culture and so on. You know, I think we connect to it emotionally without even having all the information about it. I think this is something that I come across all the time from Puerto Ricans who have never been to the island, who don't speak Spanish who they still cook the traditional food in the traditional ways, but they feel very, very strongly that they belong to this place. And that's, that's something that, that it's, I just love that. <laughs> I love that idea. In the acknowledgments of the book, you write about it, that as a Puerto Rican, your feelings about the country, even though you've been in the United States for so long, and, I, and I'd appreciate your reading a part of what you write in the acknowledgments, because I think it, it states it very well. As a Puerto Rican who lives in the United States, I ache for the place where I was born and its people here and there. I rage at the laws that force us to live as subjects of a government that refuses to acknowledge Puerto Rico is a colony and treats its people with disdain as second-class citizens. 
even though it was their idea, not ours, that we be born, live, fight for, and die with a U.S. flag over our heads. It's difficult for me to write about Puerto Rico and its people without sentimientos, even as I resist sentimentality. Controlling my emotions is a survival mechanism built over decades of wrestling with being a Puerto Rican, fulfilling my responsibilities and obligations as a citizen, while simultaneously chafing at the yoke forced upon me by history made by men across an ocean. There are times when I dread the news from the Puerto Rican archipelago, overwhelmed by the challenges my people must endure just to live in the place we call home. Even if we've never visited our islands, it is nuestra patria we love and long for. I want to ask Las Madres specifically. The opening sentence is about losing the accent mark over the Enya. And then it ends with people literally on a plane between the United States and Puerto Rico. Given that the whole book is about an identity crisis, I'm interested if you knew exactly where you were going to begin and exactly where you were going to end. Very good question. And yes, I do not start writing a book without knowing where it ends and what's in the middle. Those are my, I figure starting a book is very easy. What happens in the middle and what happens at the end is a lot harder. <laughs> so I always, I kind of knew that that's how it would end. And I knew that the middle would be Hurricane Maria in some way. And that particular chapter of the hurricane was probably the hardest thing that I wrote in this book. It was very emotional for me. And um, it, in fact, even now, uh, it's hard for me to read out loud from that chapter, even though I wrote it. Because I still, I still feel what happened. This is, you know, six years later and there are still homes with blue tarp on their roofs. People still living in under housing situations. And so it just continues to emotionally affect me and concern me and worry me. Kate and I have talked a lot about that chapter. It mm-hmm. is the most searing. Mm-hmm description of what it is like to live through a natural disaster that I have ever read. Mm, Thank you. You really feel and can internalize what's going on as Maria, the storm, plows through Puerto Rico. But I I also thought it was symptomatic, or you use it as a representative of all the kinds of problems that Puerto Rico has had to endure, which also leads me to be interested in the fact that with all of those problems— the loyalty that people feel uh, to the island is so strong and permeates their being. Did you live, have you lived through a terrible storm in Puerto Rico? I was, I think, eight or nine years old uh, with, I think, what ended up being Betsy in the United States. We called it Santa Clara at the time uh, in Puerto Rico. And so I, I have a very strong memory of, um, I think I write about it in, in when I was Puerto Rican, but one of the things that I, I have never forgotten is when we emerged from the, from the shelter place, uh, so a neighbor's home that was made of cement. And my mother kept saying, we lost 11 avocado trees. We lost eight mango trees. And this is so perfectly a good example of her, her 
challenge always was to feed 11 children. (laughs) (laughs) So she was worried about all the food that we were not going to get while my dad was going like, there is no house. <laughs> he was a, he's a builder. He's a contractor. So, so it really told me a lot about when people come out of these kinds of events, you know, you go to the thing that is, that you're most worried about. And then, you know, regarding Maria, it was a hundred years from San Felipe Segundo. And my dad was eight years old mm. when that happened. And I think this whole concept of writing about Maria emerges from long before Maria comes to Puerto Rico. I was talking to my dad. He was in his 90s. And I was just, so, Papi, do you remember that hurricane? And this is a 90-plus-year-old man, practically in tears, remembering himself as, as a little kid and everything that had happened around him and what the fa- his parents had to do and so on. And I realized, oh, my God, the Maria people who were there, this is going to be in their lives the rest of them. That trauma is just going to be with them the rest of their lives. And that was very moving to me. His, his you know, this, this sense of this huge loss that he had as a little kid, but also realizing that it's happened again and there's a whole other couple of generations who are going to be carrying this. I'm interested as a writer how you approach the process. The chapter is entitled Maria. It's it's so ambitious. I called it how do I, I described it to my father as a cross section of horror and sorrow. I but I'm interested is <laughs> when you sat down and said, Okay, I gotta do this, what was the process like for you? And then how did you recover from it? Well, this is what happened. I was avoiding it (laughs) for a long time. Uh, And I knew that Maria would be at the center uh, because the women were going to Puerto Rico and they would be there during the hurricane. And I knew that it would be at the center. And I thought about it and thought about it and avoided it and procrastinated and did everything possible not to have to do it. And one morning I woke up and I said, and I remember said this to to a friend, I'm going to become Hurricane Maria today. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> I said, I, I have to do this. I can't put it off anymore. And I have to be this hurricane and see what happens as a hurricane. And I wrote the whole thing in one sitting. Wow. 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 Yeah. I, just in one day. I just wrote the whole thing. A lot of the stories came from testimonies, from newspaper reports, people that I talked to, and one of the deaths in there happened to one of my cousins. So it it was this whole combination of all the research, all the fears that I had while I was here watching it on TV because, you know, I wasn't there. And my concern for the people who had been there and who were still struggling with this at the time that I started writing this book, Maria was haunting me, you know, and then after a while I just had to challenge it. (laughs) I say, okay, I'm going to be you now. (laughs) We've talked a lot about your feelings about Puerto Rico and about the characters feeling about Puerto Rico, but I don't want to overemphasize that. This is a wonderful Mm. yarn. Mm. It's just a good book. Mm. And with a wonderful plot twist at the end, 
I say wonderful. It's just you, you, you don't see it coming. As a result, it really keeps you engaged all the way through the book. When you open the first page of this novel, you are dropped right into these women's worlds. It takes a while for you to explain how these women know each other. You're not concerned about getting all that exposition in the first few pages. I mean, was that a technique you were conscious of? And were you ever worried that you might lose a reader if you waited too long? Well, one always worries about that. And, uh, you know, from the first sentence, yeah. you're worried that they may not like it and <laughs> throw the book across you. So that's, that's something you worry about. But I also, I think of myself, I'm not a stylist like some of those writers, you know. I'm a storyteller. I, that, that I know that that's where my strength is because that's my training from being a little kid. I didn't have TV until I was 13. So we just told stories to each other. And that's what I did in my family. That was my role in my family. So I knew how to tell. I knew that that was what I would do. And I also know that uh, when you tell a story, you don't tell everything at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Throw it out as long as you can. And also because there's so many characters, I wanted the reader's to meet them, to meet these characters and to like them or, or not, you know, it's up to them, but to really know who they are uh, and have a sense of who they are and what their concerns are and what their worries are and what their buttons <laughs> to press, to press on them. I kind of allowed myself as much latitude as I could with that and didn't feel rushed. I knew that I would get to the hurricane eventually, (laughs) just as they did. (laughs) But I had to, uh, I felt like, you know, the other thing I think at the very beginning, I talk about, there are a lot of characters in this book, because I'm constantly being criticized by my editors, and my agents, and my husband who reads my manuscript. You have so many characters. I go, Yes, we do. I'm the eldest of 11 children. I am surrounded by, not only by the living people in my life, they are, I'm surrounded by the, by my my ancestors, you know, because they're very present in my imagination and in my thoughts. And I'm very aware that a lot of, uh, because I'm writing historical books, I mean, this was only six years ago, but it is part of our history. I'm very aware that history doesn't name Mm. everybody. They only Mm. name the great names. And so I put a lot of names in there. Names, they're all invented, but I just wanted to make sure that people knew that people, people, named people live in this world. And that that's really important to me. Kate said to me, she read somewhere that you said, I write for women. Mm. I write primarily for women. And all five of the principal characters I just talked about are women. First of all, was it okay if I read the book? I'm a guy. And, <laughs> and, and secondly, you might learn something, Charlie. <laughs> and secondly, uh, is that true? Do you have basically a female reader in mind? I guess I have learned since with my first book, I wrote for whoever <laughs> happened to pick up this book. I didn't really have a sense that I had readers in comillas. You know, I didn't have a sense of that. But in the years since when I was Puerto Rican came out 30 plus years ago, I learned that the majority of readers of my work are women. And so that makes me feel great, (laughs) but also it makes it, I know, have a sense of who my audience is. And I know 
that, I mean, I'm a very big reader myself. And I think that we have had hundreds of years of men writing about women and without having any idea of our emotional lives, (laughs) except from what they observe, which is sometimes incorrect. Uh, so I feel very much like it's my job to write as a woman from a perspective of a woman and speak to women and men who wanted to know more about women. Um, so that's my job, I think, as a writer. I think sometimes with two daughters and a wife, he desperately, when we got a dog, he was like, can I please be a male dog? Can I please be a male dog? Please don't, don't leave me alone. I, before we rapid fire you, I have one more question because you're unique in the sense that I have fallen in love with your nonfiction work. I have now fallen in love with your fiction, which is easier for you. I would say memoir is easier because I know what happens. I know all the characters. (laughs) I remember all the songs in the correct years and so on. But the stories that I want to tell right now are not about me. So it's much harder for me to write fiction because I'm inventing a world I don't live in. And with people who do things that I don't do and can't do and sometimes won't do. So it's more challenging. And and I think what I said earlier about feeling like my ambitions, sometimes I feel like I just don't think that I can do this. And yet I'm stubborn enough to just keep going <laughs> with that. It's part of the fun and the drama around me, you know. My family knows when I'm writing a novel because I'm a different person. Esmeralda <laughs> <laughs> Santiago, the book is Las Madres. It is a wonderful read. You say also in your acknowledgments, a storyteller without an audience is an unheard song. So I thank you, reader, for having come this far with me. You're the reason I do this work, and we are glad you do. It is a wonderful book. We love both your fiction and your nonfiction, and it's been a pleasure to have you in the bookcase again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Charlie and Kate. It was really, it's so much fun to talk to you. You have great questions, and I feel very free to oh. say who yeah. I am. So that's great. Enjoyed it. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
rapid fire for Esmeralda Santiago. Are you going to write a memoir of this stage of your life? And if you did, what would you call it? I am not going to write any more memoirs because I have a very big book working on right now that is going to take me a while. I mean, again, I'd have to live to be a hundred to be able to do all, all the stories I need to do. So the title of the third memoir might be, let me finish this first and then I'll get <laughs> to it. Let me finish this By yeah. Esmeralda Santiago. So anyway, sorry. Called, I'll get to you eventually. <laughs> <laughs> the last time you were with us, you said, if you weren't a writer, you'd like to be an opera singer. What opera role were you born to play? Oh my God. Oh, I think Tosca. <laughs> I love Tosca. Yeah. And I also, I really do love the Queen of the Night aria <laughs> because I actually, it took me a long time to look up what the words of what it was saying because I was completely reacting to the music and the sounds coming from the singers. And then I go like, oh, my God, <laughs> I should not have looked. But those are the two favorite characters mm. in the opera that I really connect with. If it were up to you, would you want Puerto Rico to be a state? I'm really very not sure about any of the options <laughs> that are being discussed. Uh, there's three options that are in the media, but there are many other options on the island, they just don't have enough traction with anyone in specific with enough people to go with that. So I'm, I'm kind of, uh, agnostic about that right now, uh, because I don't really, I don't really know. I don't really know how I feel about it. You know, I think my, fa my family were all nationalists and my uncle almost died because of that. They were imprisoned, they were in revolutions, all kinds of things. So my heart goes to independence, but my intellect says, is there leadership to lead an independent island? I don't think we have that yet. So, so, and the two other options are kind of um, iffy about that. I, I don't particularly go one way or the other. Hmm. The last time you were here, you were knee deep in an obsession with Olga Tokarsik, who's your current <laughs> author obsession. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm still going through her work and now I'm going also, uh, Jenny Erpenbeck, a German, um, East, East, she was born in East Berlin and then lived through when the, uh, wall went down and then all of a sudden you could walk through the West. <laughs> and, and she's a wonderful writer and I'm going through all her books right now. Advice you would give a writer starting out? Read everything that you can get your hands on, especially work that you really enjoy because you will write like your favorite writers. All right. Thank you. Thank Jennifer, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Kate, I have, before talking to her, I looked up Esmeralda on Wikipedia and it says she, in her, in her writing, she navigates the cultural dissonance through a culturization. Uh, if, if I had read that before, I never would have read the novel. Uh, that's, wow. that's, uh, yeah. Uh, what, what she writes wow. about is this wonderful feeling that she still has after having been in this country for over 60 years that she still has for Puerto Rico and her characters exhibit that so well. It, it really is, as you said, a wonderful novel that, that doesn't apply just to Puerto Rico. Any, anybody who uh, emigrates to this country 
and their feeling for their country of origin. It shows through so clearly in her writing. Well, and Puerto Rico, I think, is, is as you mentioned in the interview, so specific. I mean, listen, I lived in New York for years. And in New York, if you happened to get Botox in 1985, they had a parade for you. I mean, New York, New York's big into parades. You know, if you whatever, let's have a parade. But there were two parades in New York that just take over the entire yep. island of Manhattan. Yep. One is St. Patty's Day right. and the other is Puerto Rican Day. And what I think is interesting is when Esmeralda talks about the pride of islands, because they're both such small countries, and yet you cannot get anywhere in Manhattan on those two days. Uh, Puerto Rican Day is a sea of red, white, and blue. Is it a, It's a sea of pride. And it's, it's amazing. It really does feel like Manhattan is, is almost an enclave of Puerto Rico that day. Yeah. Um, and you really do get a sense of that incredible patriotic, that Nuestra País that she talks about on that day in New York. So it's, it's a delight to talk to her. We're going to go back to uh, having an independent bookstore at the end of our podcast. And this week it is Wordsworth in Little Rock, Arkansas. Lynn Phillips is one of the owners. And we talked to her recently about her bookstore. Lynn from Wordsworth Books, it is so nice to have you in the bookcase. And, you know, we've talked to a lot of folks about how they got started in the book business, why they own a bookstore. But where I want to start with you is really why you've been in the headlines. Why has Wordsworth Books been in the headlines specifically in Arkansas recently? (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, our legislature and its infinite wisdom passed a law that basically criminalizes providing materials that are inappropriate for minors. It now becomes like a felony if you sell a book or you're a librarian and you check a book out to a child and their parent decides that it's not appropriate for them. So we were approached by Nate Coulter, who is the head of the Central Arkansas Library System, about joining him and the and some other plaintiffs in the case to strike the law down. Just an anathema to what we do, which is, you know, provide books to people, you know, that they're looking for. And of course, we're not going to sell Fifty Shades of Grey to a 12-year-old. You know, we, we do have some some limits, but if you sell a book, let's say about a child who has two moms to a kid because it's geared towards their age group and they take it home and their parents are upset about it, we're in trouble. This case, this particular instance, because we are taking part in this, I just feel like this is a really, this is a real way to make a difference. You know, I mean, I feel really empowered and proud that we're able to do this. It's just a real concrete way of standing up to this craziness that is book banning and trying to control what people have access to. Well, then we'll follow that with interest. Arkansas Act 372, you will be on the side of the angels on that one. I want to turn the page and talk about the store because I'm always interested why bookstore owners do what they do. As a reader, you read a book and you're not done. I think Ann Patchett said this. You're not done. The compact is not done until you hand that book to someone else and get them to read it. And Nothing makes me happier than to be able to put a book in a customer's hand and say, you're going to love this book. And then they come back and say, I love that book. And now anytime I recommend a book, they'll take it. They don't, you know, it's like 
done. You, no, you know, it's, I, I, I told is. my father it's a, it's an addiction when you it hand is. somebody a pile of recommendations and they said, well, I, I, I only am going to buy two today. I'll take these into the cafe and figure out which I want. Yeah. You almost always as a bookseller, this is the truth. You almost always watch when that person leaves the cafe, go to the cash register and say, which ones did they buy? And Absolutely. if your titles are on there, you go, yes, yes. Um, it's it's <laughs> yeah. very weird. It's a very weird addiction. It just is. I don't know. It, it, it's, a, it's a rush, right? It's like it, you get that sort of endorphin rush. You're like, oh, I did it. I did it again. And it, it I, my husband jokes, he's like, I've never, he, I've, you've never been happier. It doesn't feel like work. None of it. None of it feels like work. So what is the most unique thing that you would cite that makes Wordsworth books special? Our booksellers, they're always going to be the thing that makes us special. We have just a fantastic group. We're a small store. We have, I think, eight of us total, including the three co-owners. We have a children's librarian on staff who does all our children's programming. We have a young woman who has a master's in Southern studies. You know, being in the South, we're, you know, we've got the influence of John Grisham, Faulkner, you know, Oxford is not that far. So Drew brings a lot there. We have Frederick is a writer and everybody reads different things and the conversations about books and what we learn from each other to be able to recommend books to customers. I think that's, it's not necessarily unique because a lot of bookstores, that's, you know, their greatest asset, but it makes it a joy to be a part of this great, this team, this family of of booksellers. So if I walked in cold today, Lynn, and said, what one book should I be reading this summer you would put in my hands? Well, I first I would ask if you're a fiction or a nonfiction reader. What do you like better? <laughs> what have you read that you've liked? I, um, I'm not a huge nonfiction reader, but I, other than, the, I mean, I, I love The Art Thief, but I read The Wager, David Graham. That is so, it's the story of a shipwreck, an, an English galleon that was going to South America to fight in the war with Spain it, as part of a squadron. And it was going through Cape Horn, the Drake Passage and ship and wrecked. And the crew that, that survived were on this island. There was nothing. There was nothing to eat, nothing to drink, no natives, nothing. And so it's kind of about their time there. It's a really well-researched account of what happened. And then the survivors who made their way back to England and the factions that were there, and there was accusations of mutiny. It's really fascinating. And I always ask people if they've read Amor Tolls a Gentleman in Moscow. Huh. Wonderful book. One of my absolute favorite books of all time. I recently reread it on audio and was just reminded of what, to me, a perfect novel that it is. Uh, I always start with that. And if people haven't read it, I just say here, you know, this is your book. But some good books that I've read recently, you know, August 1st and Patchett's Tom Lake comes out. So I'll be, I'm so excited. I will be putting that in people's hands. Lynn Phillips, a great pleasure to talk to you. Wordsworth Books, you can find it on R Street in Little Rock. 
just uh, just off North University Avenue, I think, since I checked the map. Yes, yes, you're and right. I, I wish you well. What reading your website, it it almost feels like Cheers. It's a very friendly bookstore, and I almost felt like it was everybody knows your name to walk into words. That before. is exactly. I describe it just like that because there are people who come in, you know, regularly, and it's like they walk in, and you're like, no, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> everybody knows your name. It's exactly that way. Just a quick note, the bookcase now has a corrections page. <laughs> Many newspapers do that when they make a mistake. Uh, we didn't actually make it, but Ann Patchett, who was with us last week, mentioned uh, an Alice McDermott book that is coming out in November, which we are very anxious to read and which everybody says is terrific. doesn't come till November, but the actual name, Ann had it slightly wrong, the actual name of the book is Absolution by Alice McDermott. And I hope I hope we get a chance to talk to her when the time comes. I hope people had a chance to listen to the Ann Patchett interview from last week. I just, it's a terrible thing to say. I fell in love with her. Uh, she's just, she's just wonderful, I thought. And I love the fact that not only is her writing sublime, but her sense of humor is as well. Well, don't worry, audiences at home. Uh, my mother is just fine. He falls in love on a pretty regular <laughs> basis and they're still married. So, you know, and since we have time for a correction on this week's episode, I feel like we have time for an update too. Lynn Phillips of Wordsworth Books in Arkansas has been keeping us updated on her action against Arkansas Act 372. And this update would probably sound more official coming from my co-host, but I'm going to give it a shot. Here it goes. The judge has at least temporarily blocked the parts of Act 372 that would hold librarians and booksellers criminally liable for distributing material considered, quote unquote, harmful to minors. So we are very happy to hear that. We wish Lynn Phillips the best and we will keep you updated as we hear more from her. A reminder about the folks who make this podcast possible in the Dakota from Esmeralda, Santiago. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. I would like to invite uh, your readers to look at books like this, you know, uh, to go outside of your reading habit and find books by other writers from other countries, translations. I read a lot of translation because how otherwise would I know about Poland in the 18th century. So uh, I, I really would encourage your listeners to expand their reading list beyond what they're, what they know. And I include my work in this because a lot of people don't know about Puerto Rican literature. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? 
Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.